0: God bless us, and the Virgin protect us. Well, once again, I want to explicitly acknowledge my debt and gratitude to our Lady of She has to take the credit for anything good, true, or beautiful. in these conferences, and all the faults are mine. I've been asked about giving out uh, copies of the conferences or posting them, so I'll, I'll explain my situation again. The general superior of our congregation has instructed me I may not publish my sermons or have anyone publish them for me. And I'm, uh, of course, going to carefully obey that, so I'll get merit. But once again, I ask you to keep uh, the superiors involved in prayer because they need your prayers. One day we will have to make a reckoning for every soul that could be helped and won't be helped. Have mercy, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When speaking about symbolism in an earlier conference, we saw that because the things of God are so far beyond our words and our ability to comprehend, uh, heaven typically speaks to us in symbols in such a way that all those who have the light of faith can understand. We saw that a Christian symbol is meant to bring up a whole host of various related ideas. In other words, one symbol can. It's actually meant to stand for and bring to mind a whole series of related spiritual concepts. We saw that both Christian symbolism, as well as our Lord's parables, hide truths which they express from those who are not open to the truth and makes them understandable to those who are open to the truth. We saw that our Lord intended the veiled meaning of his words to be revealed to anyone seeking the truths in them. We saw that although the people had heard our Lord's message, they didn't understand, simply because their hearts weren't open to the truth. He wasn't hiding the truth from them but the great majority just didn't want to hear it. And so they were left hardened, unresponsive, and under his judgment. We saw that like our Lord, Our Lady intends the veiled meaning of her symbolic messages, for example, the miracle of the son of Fatima, and Rom and Orem, the vision of the Third Secret, Our Lady intends the veiled mes- meaning of her symbolic messages to be revealed to those who are seeking the truths to be found in them, but that she deliberately teaches in symbols because, for the most part, the hearts of the people have not, and are still not open to a message. The great majority of men have never been interested in most truths, and so everything was given in symbols that they may see indeed, but not perceive, and hear but not understand, with the result being that they've been left hardened and unresponsive." In other words, the very format of the Third Secret, as it's been revealed to us, a symbolic vision without accompanying explanation, That format is, in itself, already a sign of judgment. It's a sign of the state of men's hearts. It's a prophetic sign of upcoming judgment. Now, in our last conference, we saw that although the Holy See gave one possible explanation of this vision, as Cardinal Ratzinger made it perfectly clear, that particular explanation is neither official nor obligatory, and we're perfectly free to seek other well-founded possibilities, and so that's exactly what we've set out to do. <clears throat> we saw that the release text of the Third Secret is a description of a vision that all three of the children saw, but there are no words from Our Lady. We saw it's not possible that Our Lady would show the children a perfectly comprehensible vision of Hell for the children, then explain exactly what that vision meant, then show them another vision, an extremely mysterious vision of the Third Secret, but give them no clear explanation as to what it meant. We saw that both Sister Lissie and St. John Paul too have stated that there were words from Our Lady. We saw that after the vision, Our Lady told the girls that they were not to tell this to anybody, but they could tell it to send it to Francisco, who never heard a word Our Lady said during any of the apparitions. We asked, Well, okay then. What were the girls supposed to tell Francisco? What could they tell him since he saw everything that they saw? There are no words from Our Lady. We're missing the very words of Our Lady, which explain the symbolic vision, because there are no words from Our Lady. We saw that Antonio Sochi has demonstrated, using evidence, including direct testimony from the personal secretary of Pope St. John XXIII, that there are two envelopes from Sister Lucia containing two documents pertaining to the Third Secret. The obvious conclusion from this is that one of the envelopes contained the released text of the Third Secret, the description. The vision that the three children saw. And the other envelope contains the words already explaining the meaning of this vision. We saw that according to Antonio Sochi, the Curia, and the Curia is the, the Pope's court or his cabinet, the Curia was opposed to publishing the Third Secret because they were afraid the contents would be used against the Vatican, would create great alarm among the people if made available to public opinion in the media and so they decided to implicitly reveal the words of Our Lady in the homily given by St. John Paul II during the Mass for the beatification of now St. Jacinto and St. Francisco, and then after the Mass, to announce that the text of the vision would be released, and for this reason they could say in all conscience that all the Third Secret has been revealed. With all that as background, we then split the vision into two parts, and organized statements from various reliable sources in an effort to come to some potential conclusions about the meaning of this mysterious vision. We consider the first part of the vision, quote, at the left of Our Lady and a little above, we saw an angel with a flaming sword in his left hand. flashing gave out flames, that looked as though they would set the world on fire, but they died out in contact with the splendor that Our Lady radiated towards him from her right hand. Pointing to the earth with his right hand, the angel cried out in a loud voice, Penance! Penance, penance, close quote. We saw that the symbolism in this passage of the vision calls to mind grave sin, men being driven out from the presence of God, calls to mind the book of Revelation, the prospect that the world might be reduced to ashes by a sea of fire, the threat of divine judgment looming over the world, and even of judgment day itself. It reminds us of the urgency of penance, of conversion, and of faith that it's men themselves who are preparing their own punishment, that men are responsible.
1: We consider what Pope's
0: Paul VI, St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI, said during their visits to Fatima. We saw that Pope Paul VI invoked the image of the woman clothed by the sun, which is found in Chapter 12 of the Book of the Apocalypse. We saw that he warned that the internal peace of the Church was at risk in the wake of the Second Vatican Council. We saw that he spoke of how evil it would be what was intended to be a spiritual renewal of the Church, were derailed. We saw that he referred to what would now be commonly called the Spirit of Vatican II, while speaking of unauthorized interpretations dissolving the traditional structure and constitution of the Church. We saw that he spoke of true te- teachings being substituted by new teachings, which are not of the faith. They spoke of a final transformation into profane mentality of worldly customs. We saw that he warned that the world was in danger, he asked her lady for peace, speaking of a scene that he contemplated with horrified eyes, the scene that her lady of Fatima opened before him. We saw that he also warned mankind to repent and believe in the Gospel, and that unless you do penance, you shall likewise perish. We saw that during his trip to Fatima, just before the announcement that the text of the Third Secret would be released, St. John Paul II used the same image as Paul VI, the one clothed by the sun, and then he cited several more lines from the same chapter in the Apocalypse, chapter 12, verses 3 and 4. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, whose tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. We briefly considered several scriptural commentaries regarding these two lines. We saw that, among other things, the red signified anger, blood, especially the blood of martyrs, and communism. We saw that in this passage, heaven is a symbol of the church and the fact that the great red dragon is seen there indicates he will be present within the church in the purse of the apostate bishops, priests, and peoples, who are symbolized by the stars dragged down by his tail. We saw that his tail as a symbol of the lying and cunning hypocrisy with which he succeeds in deceiving a large number of people and pastors by love of earthly things, by false teachings and changes in doctrine, and by lying, hypocritical, worldly-minded clergy. We saw that in the context of demonstrating that when man puts God aside, he cannot achieve happiness, but ends up destroying himself. St. John Paul II went through an entire litany of horrors in the last century, all of which may very well have to do with the red color of the great dragon. He spoke of the First and Second World Wars, the other wars throughout the world, the concentration and extermination camps, the gulags, ethnic cleansings and persecutions, terrorism, kidnappings, drugs, the attack on unborn life and the family. We saw that he summed up the message of Fatima as being a call to conversion, warning to have nothing to do with the great red dragon who appeared in heaven and whose tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And We saw that since that message, directly from the apocalypse, is certainly not anywhere to be found in the published parts of the message of Fatima, we concluded that presumably it comes from the very words of Our Lady. We saw that St. John Paul II issued a call to conversion using the exact line used by Paul VI on his visit, which called to mind the cries of the angel with the flaming sword, repent and believe in the gospel. We also considered St. John Paul II's statement that, the message of Fatima is so deeply rooted in the gospel and the whole of tradition that the church feels that the message imposes a commitment on her. And we asked, out of all the words of our lady at Fatima that have been published, What exactly is so deeply rooted in the Gospel and the whole of tradition that the message imposes a commitment on the Church? We saw that in speaking of the message, St. John Paul II did not simply address himself to the Catholic Church. In fact, he used apocalyptic language addressed to all mankind when he stated that the message is addressed to every human being, to all societies, nations, and peoples, societies menaced by apostasy, threatened by moral degradation, threatened with collapse. We saw that he presented himself in Fatima, quote, as a witness to the almost apocalyptic menaces looking over the nations and mankind as a whole. The whole range of menaces gathering like a dark cloud over mankind. We saw that he stated that Our Lady cannot keep silent on what undermines the very basis of our salvation. And since our Catholic faith is the very basis of our salvation, this implies the message of Fatima contains a warning from Our Lady regarding dangers to our Catholic faith, which should seem to relate to what was said about the tale of the dragon. We saw that during Pope Benedict XVI's visit to Fatima, that he spoke of willful murder, one of the sins that cries out to heaven for vengeance, and he stated that mankind succeeded in unleashing the cycle of death and terror, but failed in bringing it to an end. We saw that he spoke of the passion of the Church as symbolized by the suffering Pope in the vision. We saw that when he stated that the sufferings of the Church come precisely from within the Church, that the greatest persecution of the Church comes not from her enemies without, but arises from sin within the Church, he seemed to be reiterating exactly what the scriptural commentary spoke of when treating the Great Red Dragon. We saw that when, in the context of a question as to whether the vision of the Third Secret includes the sufferings of the Church for the horrific sins of the sexual abuse of minors, Pope Benedict stated that the Church has a deep need to relearn penance to accept purification, and also the need for justice. In response to that statement, we asked, what sort of public penance has the hierarchy of the Church imposed on themselves in reparation for all this sexual abuse, in reparation for all this horrific scandal? We saw that the answer is, they have done no public penance. We saw that in this country, the Dallas Accords for dealing with these situations deal with all members of the clergy, Except for the bishops. We saw they can't even get themselves to admit that it's a homosexual problem, in spite of the fact that their own data show that 81% of the victims were male. We saw that Pope Benedict spoke of the need of justice and purification. We asked, keep in mind that this is another one of the sins that crowd to heaven for vengeance. What would divine justice look like in the case of the sodomitical abuse of so many altar boys? What would a purification like that look like? And we answered, Well, we all know exactly what that would look like. Fire from heaven. That's what that would look like. And in that light, we briefly consider the message of Our Lady of Akita, a message which has been approved as authentic and worthy of belief, which was given to Sister Agnes, a Japanese nun, on the anniversary of the miracle of his son, October 13th, 1973. We were testimony that the diocesan bishop was certain Akita was an extension of Fatima, and that Cardinal Ratzinger had personally confirmed that the messages of Fatima and Akita were essentially the same. We saw that Lady of Akita spoke of both physical and a spiritual chastisement, that she asked us to pray the rosary daily and warn that if men do not repent and better themselves, fire will fall from the sky and will wipe out a great part of humanity the good as well as the bad, sparing neither priests nor faithful. We saw that she warned that the work of the devil would infiltrate the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals, bishops against other bishops, that the priests of her will be scorned and opposed by their confreres, that churches and altars will be sacked, that the church will be left to those who accept compromise and that the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. That's the tale of the dragon again. And we saw that she promised that those who placed their confidence in her would be saved. We saw that in her last public interview, Sister Lucía warned that the devil was in the mood for a decisive battle against the Blessed Virgin. The devil knows what it is that offends God the most, which in a short space of time will gain from the greatest numbers of souls, which is doing everything to overcome souls consecrated to God, and thus leave the souls of the faithful abandoned by their leaders. We then considered the second part of the vision, quote, and we saw an immense light that is God, something similar to how people appear in a mirror when they pass in front of it. A bishop dressed in white, we had the impression that it was the Holy Father. Other bishops, priests, men and women religious going up a steep mountain, the top of which there's a big cross of rough-hewn trunks as of a quark tree with a bark. Before reaching there, the Holy Father passed through the big city, half in ruins and half trembling with halting step, <laughs> afflicted with pain and sorrow. He prayed for the souls of the corpses he met on his way. Having reached the top of the mountain, on his knees at the foot of the big cross, he was killed by a group of soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at him. In the same way, there died one after another the other bishops, priests, men and women religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions. Beneath the two arms of the cross there were two angels, each with a crystal aspersorium in his hand, which they gathered up the blood of the martyrs, with it sprinkled the souls that were making their way to God." Close quote. We saw that the symbolism in the second part of the vision calls to mind a whole series of images of mountains as places of encounter with God. The Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, the Temple on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And since this mountain is surrounded, surmounted by a cross, there's somebody dying there, Is particularly evocative in Mount Calvary as well as the Alternate Catholic Church. We saw that in terms of cities, the big city calls to mind Nineveh, which was spared when the citizens repented. At the same time, it calls to mind Jerusalem, where the citizens rejected the preaching of Christ, which was subsequently destroyed. It also calls to mind the city of Rome, which in our day and age seems to have thoroughly rejected Christ as well. We saw that the city is also symbolic of the Catholic Church in her human element. And thus the fact that the city is half in ruins can be understood in both a physical as well as a spiritual sense to apply to both cities such as Rome as well as the Church in her human element. We saw that the corpses can also be understood in both a physical as well as a spiritual sense, dead in the common sense of the world or spiritually dead. We saw that the Pope's journey symbolizes both the Pope as such, as well as the church on the way to the cross, traveling through a time of violence, destruction, and persecution. We saw that, among other things, the path up the mountain symbolized the persecution and the martyrdom of the faithful. We saw the symbolic vision with the city half in ruins, filled with corpses, and the slaughter martyrdom of the Pope and so many clerics and ladies with bullets and arrows was something that did not have to come to pass, since it was conditional. But the condition to avoid these disasters was to heed Our Lady's requests. And as we've already seen, and as Sister Lucia noted, we didn't do that. Quote, since we did not heal this appeal of message, we see that it has been fulfilled. Russia has invaded the world with her heirs. Close quote Sister Lucia. And Sister Lucia also pointed out in 1982 that, quote, if we have not yet seen the complete fulfillment of the final part of this prophecy, we are going towards it little by little with great strides. And the pace has only accelerated since then. The errors of Russia do indeed fill the world, and as we've seen in earlier conference, now these errors even fill the Catholic Church in a human element. We briefly considered a few of the religious errors of Russia that prevail in the Catholic Church today. We saw that one error pertains to the Orthodox concept of church unity, and that the Orthodox have splintered themselves in all kinds of particular independent national churches. We saw that this era of Russia has been promoted in Rome to the point where we now have countries in which, one, in one country, the Catholic Church apparently has different teachings than other countries. For example, in Germany, active adulterers are invited to receive communion, while well, right next door in Poland, this is completely forbidden. We saw that another era pertains to marriage, in that the Orthodox have totally and completely corrupted the clear gospel teaching of Christ regarding the insoluble of marriage by allowing a divorced individual to marry a second even a third time. We saw that yet another error pertains to Holy Communion, that the Orthodox allow these divorced and so-called remarried people who are living in sin to receive Holy Communion, and thus they officially allow sacrilege. We saw that these heirs, the Orthodox, who pretend that people who are living in sin are actually married, and then who compound that scandalous recognition by extending these poor sinners an official invitation to make sacrilegious communions. We saw these errors in Russia have both been heavily promoted in application of more statitiae, even by the Pope, who to varying degrees has shown his approval for active adulterers to be given Holy Communion in the Buenos Aires, pastoral region of Argentina, Diocese of Malta, and his own diocese, the Diocese of Rome, and now he's even published that letter to the Buenos Aires uh, bishops in the Acta. So it's an act of Pope Francis. We also saw these very errors of Rush were first promoted on a grand scale in Catholic circles, not by the so-called liberals, but by the traditionalists, by such groups as the Society of St. Pius X for decades, direct repudiation of the teaching of Council of Trent, have encouraged countless couples to invalidly attempt to contract marriages in their chapels, and thus to live together without the benefit of an actual sacramental marriage, and at the same time to continue receiving communion. And we've seen there's never been a peep from the Tradi Press about any of this. In other words, the Tradi Press has been fully on board for decades with these errors of Russia. The Tradi Press has been fully on board for decades with the very abominations being promoted in the application of Morris Petitiae. We saw that another religious error of Russia pertains to approval of contraception, an error that has com- almost completely infested our church from top to bottom, including the Pope. We saw that the papal support for such things as contraception and for the divorce to be and to receive communion sheds a different light on one of St. Jim comments recorded by Sister Lucia. Quote, In Jacinta's love for the Holy Father and for sinners, she said to me many times, Poor Holy Father, I feel sorry for sinners. Close quote. We asked, Why might St. Jacinta feel sorry for sinners? We saw that one very good reason would be that they're being misled by the Pope. They're being misled by the Pope, which is yet another reason for her to be so concerned about him.
1: We saw that since the city is symbolic of the
0: Catholic Church, her human element, it's easy to understand why it's half in ruins and full of corpses. Insofar as anyone is subscribed to any of these areas of Russia, he's spiritually dead. We saw that the symbolic vision wasn't simply spiritual, it also pertains to the social order. It's a vision of upcoming events and the political order. We saw that in the vision, the Pope, other bishops, priests, and men and women religious, various lay people of different ranks and positions, were killed by soldiers who fired bullets and arrows at them. We asked, "What could this possibly mean?" We reminded ourselves that one of the goals of the cultural Marxists, one of the other leaders of Russia, was to promote massive immigration to destroy identity, which is why we have a massive, massive number of the jihadists that are flowing into the West. We saw that the jihadists in Europe have been told to prepare for the upcoming war to conquer Rome by stockpiling weapons whose possession is current, not currently illegal, like bows and arrows, so they can be employed in urban guerrilla warfare. We saw that the goal of conquering Rome actually was right back to Muhammad himself, and the current e-magazine published by ISIS for jihadists entitled Rumia. That's their name for Rome. We saw that all this gives a probable context for understanding how, at a physical level, the city will be half in ruins, and how the Pope, other bishops, priests, men and women, religious, and various lay people of different ranks and positions may very well be killed by bullets and arrows. And at the same time, it gives a probable context for understanding, at a physical level, St. Jacinta's visions of the Holy Father, as well as the misfortune falling on the ministers of the church for not doing the consecration of Russia in a timely fashion. We saw this also brought to, to a sharper focus some of the prophecies and visions uh, the Virgin of Revelation gave to Bruno. As for example, when she told him that, quote, from the east a strong people, but far away from God, will unleash a tremendous attack, will break the most holy and sacred things when it will be allowed them to do so, close quote. Or, quote, a punishment will suddenly come from the east. They will receive the power to be able to subjugate the, those whom they call infidels. This will happen very soon, close quote. We saw that Carl Ratzinger stated that the things contained in the third secret correspond to what has been announced in Scripture, and that as of 1984, it had not been made public in order to prevent religious prophecy from being mistaken for sensationalism. We asked, in regards to the vision released, what exactly has been announced in Scripture? What exactly could be mistaken for sensationalism? Where can we find the third secret in Scripture? We saw that in a conference in 1967, Carl Ottaviani, who had been the head of the congregation for the doctrine of faith, he compared the third secret to prophecies of sacred scripture which are covered in a veil of mystery. For example, what is said in the prophecies contained in the book of the Apocalypse. And as we've heard during their visits to Fatima, both Paul VI and John Paul II, in chapter 12 of the Apocalypse. And finally, we saw that Sister Lucia herself explicitly linked the third part of the secret to the book of the Apocalypse. Quote, It's in the Gospel and the Apocalypse. Read them. Close quote. We also know that one day she indicated chapters 8 through 13 of the apocalypse. So that's where we'll pick up today. But before we do that, we'll take a few minutes to talk about what we're not going to do here. We're not going to give the explanation of chapters 8 to 13, apocalypse. First off, in spite of what some authors and a lot of TV preachers would lead you to believe, there isn't a the meaning of the apocalypse. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, if there was a the meaning of the apocalypse, then St. John would not have used symbolic language. And yet virtually every element of this book is symbolic. And as we've seen, symbolic language is meant to evoke a whole host of various related ideas. In other words, one symbol can and is meant to stand for and bring to mind a whole series of related spiritual concepts. One author explains this point, quote, Biblical symbolism and imagery is not a code. Biblical symbolism, like poetry, is evocative language used when discursive, specific language is insufficient. The Bible uses evocative imagery to call up to our minds various associations which have been established by the Bible's own literary art. For example, if, in Revelation 13, St. John had wanted to say Nero, he would have said Nero. Instead, he said Beast. By using the symbol Beast, he was not just giving a code for Nero, who is bring to mind a whole series of biblical associations, the beast in the garden, Nebuchadnezzar turned into a beast, the three beasts in Daniel's visions, and so forth." Close quote. In other words, since a symbolic image doesn't simply stand for one thing, since a symbolic image is deliberately meant to stand for and bring to mind a whole host of related concepts, that means that in a work like the Apocalypse, a whole series of multiple related meanings are not just possible, but actually intended by heaven. So because the symbolism in the apocalypse is actually intended to bring to mind a whole series of multiple related meanings, and because it pertains to prophecy, and because there are actually going be multiple fulfillments of prophecy, that means that when we're dealing with a passage from this work, there can easily be more than one interpretation that fits the passage. In fact, there could be a whole series of interpretations that fit the passage, not as to the ultimate fulfillment of any particular prophetic passage, but certainly pertaining to each of the partial prefiguring fulfillments. Now, Matryoshka dolls can give us some idea of uh, what we mean here. Matryoshka dolls are those really beautiful painted wooden dolls, they're Russian wooden dolls, and they're nested one inside the other. You pull it ball apart, inside is a smaller doll and you pull that apart, inside is a smaller doll and you pull that apart, and so on, until finally you get to the smallest doll. Now suppose you had a whole series of Matryoshka dolls that all follow the same thing: From the smallest to the largest, they are all peasant girls smallest would have the least detail, the next doll has more details, and so on until you reach the largest doll with the most details. All that's roughly analogous to considering various interpretations of a particular passage in the Apocalypse. Just as you can start with the details of a smaller doll and, uh, and so on until you're contemplating the largest doll with the most details, so there can be a whole series of interpretations that actually fit the passage, which pertain to each of the partial prefiguring fulfillments So each one of those interpretations more or less perfectly fits the passage until finally you arrive at the ultimate fulfillment. It's not uncommon to find commentaries that lead the reader to believe that this commentary unlocks the Book of Revelation. But as far as I'm concerned, the idea of unlocking or decoding or deciphering isn't really that appropriate. St. John is a mystic. He's recording mystical visions. So we're not going to unlock the apocalypse because it's not locked. We're not going to decode it. It's written in symbolic language, not some sort of code. We're not going to decipher it. It wasn't written using a cipher that we break, and then we just decipher it. It's written in symbolic language. Furthermore, we're not dealing with passages whose, whose, uh, whose interpretation has been definitively explained by the magistrate of the church. So given all that, we're not going to offer the explanation of chapters 8 through 13. I want to emphasize that we're not going to offer the explanation of chapters 8-13. through 13. It's easy to find other interpretations of these chapters in any particular passage within them, and that's fine. I have more than 30 commentaries dealing with the apocalypse. Virtually every one of these commentaries differs significantly from the others. So it's easy to find other interpretations of these chapters in any particular passage, and that's fine. We're not to poll. Today we're not claiming to give the interpretation of chapters 8-13. through 13. Okay, so that's what we're not going to do today. Just what is it that we are going to do today? What we are going to do is offer, offer a possible interpretation in the light of fathom, starting with chapter 8 of the Apocalypse, using various commentators and the analogy of faith. That means we're not out to invent anything, but rather that we're going to read it in the light of the teaching of the church, in the light of the rest of Scripture, in the light of tradition. That's what the analogy of the faith means. Okay, so let's get started. What we'll do is read a section from Apocalypse, then we'll follow that with explanations drawn from various scriptural commentaries, and then with that as context, we'll follow the commentary in the light of Fathom. There's a lot more that could be said. The problem is certainly not a lack of information, but given the time constraints, we're not gonna be able to comment on every line in these chapters. And even when we do comment, we're only gonna hit on the main points. Chapter eight, when he, the Lamb, it opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven as it were for half an hour from the commentaries quote the best Old Testament reference to silence before the Lord is in the book of the prophet Zephaniah Zephaniah be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is at hand the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests the great day of the Lord is near near and hastening fast a day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. I will bring distress on men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. In the fire of his jealous wrath, all that are shall be consumed. For full, yea, sudden end will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Thus the prophet Zephaniah. We continue. His message is a prophecy of the day of the Lord and the catastrophe that will affect not only Judah but also the nations. Zephaniah's message is that Judah is condemned for disobedience to the covenant and for religious and moral corruption. Salvation is promised only to a humble and obedient remnant. The science announces the day of the Lord which is represented as a sacrificial banquet in which the people of Judah are the victims. They are the guests consecrated for slaughter. The terrible consequence of this day, of the Lord, is preceded by silence. Close quotes. Thus the commentaries. So this is a foreboding silence. It's hearkening back to the example of the people of God being condemned for religious and moral corruption, being condemned for disobedience to their covenantal obligations, being prepared for slaughter. And it points forward to the people of God being condemned for the same crimes. So this is a silence before the judgments fall on the nations. It's like the silence before the flood. This is the silence before the trumpets blow and the terrors begin. It points forward to the ultimate day of the Lord, that day of wrath, that day of tongue of blast, and battle cry, the final judgment. And another angel came and stood before the altar, having a golden censer. And it was given to him much incense that he should offer of the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which is before the throne of God. The smoke of the incense of the prayers of the saints is sent up before God from the hand of the angel. The angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and cast it on earth. There were thunders and voices and lightnings and a great earthquake. From the commentaries, quote, fire that falls from heaven to earth is frequently a sign of judgment. while earthquake imagery signifies the judgment of nations in both testaments. This passage is modeled to a great extent on Ezekiel 10, 1 through 7, which angels are commanded to slay all the unfaithful in Jerusalem, on whose foreheads God's angel did not give a protective mark. The destroying angels then execute the command to slay. The command of the angel to take fire from the temple and cast it on Jerusalem highlights the coming judgment on Jerusalem. As the book of Ezekiel reveals, the judgment is actually carried out by the invaded Babylonians, who are operating under the guidance of of the angels, close quotes. That's the commentary. So given that fire falling from heaven earthquakes are signs of judgment on the nations, the background to this passage has to do with the slaying of the unfaithful in Jerusalem, which is a type of the world. In this passage, the angel taking fire from the temple and casting it down symbolizes the coming judgment about to fall on the unfaithful throughout the world. It symbolizes that God is about to chastise his people for their infidelity and their lack of charity, for the breaking of the commandments, the cold hearts of the priests for the apostasy riddling the church and just as in the foreshadowing of this passage a judgment was carried out by an invading army, so now this coming judgment is about to be carried out by savage armies and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound the trumpet the seven angels are in fact standing at attention, waiting for the signal to blast their horn, as the soldiers would wait for the signal to fire a shot in battle The principal features of chapters eight to 11 are a series of seven trumpet blasts, each followed by a judgment in the form of a plague or punishment. Before we look at the individual events, let's take a moment to briefly consider the symbolism of the trumpets in general. Then we'll follow that with a brief consideration of plagues or punishments in general, and then we'll turn to the individual trumpet blasts. So the symbolism of the trumpet blasts in general from the commentaries, quote, in several texts of the Prophets, warnings of judgment are accompanied by a trumpet blast. Thus, for example, in Ezekiel 33, the watchman will blow the temp- trumpet to warn the people, and Zephaniah 1, the great day of the Lord will be a day of trumpet and battle cry. The primary background here is the fall of Jericho, which clarifies two important ideas necessary for understanding the trumpet blows in Revelation. First, the emphasis with the tr- trumpets is on judgment more than warnings to repent. In Jericho, the trumpets blown by the priests are not warnings at all, but indicate ultimately only judgment. The second idea is that the first six trumpets in Revelation 8 through 9 are punishments preliminary to a climactic judgment. The first six trumpets blown at Jericho announce the judgment to come on the seventh day. Likewise, the first six trumpets of the apocalypse should be viewed as necessary preliminary woes leading up to a climax and a decisive judgment. The definitive judgment signaled by the seventh trumpet is the last judgment at the end of history, thus the commentaries. Okay, so both of the fall of Jericho, which is the primary background for these trumpet blasts, and elsewhere in scripture, trumpets are battle cries and warns of judgment. Just as the first six trumpets blown at Jericho heralded the judgment coming on the seventh day, so also the first six trumpets of the apocalypse announced preliminary punishments culminating in the punishment associated with the seventh trumpet, which is the last judgment and the end of history. Symbolism of punishments in general from the commentaries. In these passages, quote, we are seeing a major rerun of the plagues with which God afflicted the Egyptians. In Exodus 7 through 12 there are 10 plagues which strike both the people and the land functioning as a warning of the Egyptians of the power of the God of Israel. And finally as a dramatic means, by which a Passover, Israel escapes, and then only because of the shed blood of the Lamb. We should not be surprised then that just Egypt was smit with plagues as both a warning and means of liberation, so the whole world is to be spent with similar plagues in order to warn its inhabitants and to deliver God's people. The trumpet plagues are primarily actual judgments on the majority of Earth's inhabitants, though secondarily they are warnings for only a remnant. Trumpets also serve to demonstrate human hardness of heart and the fact that people are being punished because of this hardness, which is expressed by their persistence in idolatry and their persecution of the saints. A remnant of unbelievers will repent in the face of these plagues, although that is not the primary aim. All of these temporal judgments climax in the great last judgment, which is described in the seventh trumpet. The idolaters had committed themselves wholly to something in creation, whether to political economic or social idolatries. In contrast to Christians who are pilgrims on the earth and whose citizenship is in heaven, the ungodly earth dwellers are at home in the present world order, men of earthbound vision, trusting earthly security, unable to look beyond the things that are seen. The apocalypse uses ones who dwell on earth exclusively of idol worshippers. Ezekiel 5 is also an important part of the background for the first four plagues. In Ezekiel 5, the aspect of coming judgment most emphasized is the severity of famine." Close quotes, thus the commentaries. Okay, so just as the plagues fell on Pharaoh e- and Egyptians for their hardest of heart, their persistence in idolatry, and their persecution of the people of Israel, so also the trumpet plagues are actual judgments that fall on the majority of mankind as a punishment for their hardness of heart, their persistence in idolatry, and their persecution of the faithful. And as we've seen, chapter five of the book of the prophet Ezekiel is an important part the background for the first four trumpet plagues. In that chapter, terrible famine was the principal punishment falling on the people of Jerusalem for the iniquities. So also in the first four trumpet plagues, terrible famine will play a role. But as we'll see in the interpretation that I'll follow in these conferences, that famine is to be understood as a spiritual famine. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to speak of a spiritual famine? Now the scriptures are very clear. We're to be nourished by God's holy world and saw a doctrine. In the book of the prophet Jeremiah, we read, quote, And I will give you pastures according to my own heart, they shall feed you with knowledge and doctrine, close quote. In 1 Timothy 4.6, St. Paul speaks of being, quote, Nourished on the words of faith and of the good doctrine, close quote. And of course, our Lord himself stated, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we're meant to be nourished by God's holy word and solid doctrine. But in a spiritual famine, the people aren't given the words of faith and solid doctrine, but rather, St. Paul puts it, they're given, quote, doctrines of devils. Or as Sister Lucia put it, they fall do. under a diabolical disorientation that invades the world and deceives souls. And a spiritual famine is exactly what the prophet Amos is speaking of in chapter eight, verses 11 and 12. Quote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The first six trumpets to sound announce various disasters and judgments coming on earth. If the people don't heed the warning and repent, and only a remnant do, if they don't heed the warning, then another trumpet will blow and a greater disaster will fall. There's this sort of momentum that builds up, trumpet after trumpet. And an interpretation will follow in these conferences. Since the warnings haven't been heeded, one plague flows into, in a certain sense it propels the next. Till finally last trumpet blows and the battle's over. It's the second coming in the last chapter. Okay, now let's turn to the individual trumpet blasts, the first trumpet. And the first angel sounded the trumpet and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. It was cast on earth, the third part of the earth was burnt up, the third part of the trees was burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. From the commentaries, in this passage, quote, some will hearken to the voice of Christ in the gospel, others will harden their hearts and refuse to obey. They shall be chastised by fire from heaven. The fires mingled with blood, a symbol of war and revolution. The interpretation of this storm can be found in Ezekiel chapter 13, where we read, there will be a deluge of rain, Great hailstones will fall, and a storm of wind break out. Thus says the Lord God, I'll make a storm wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones and wrath to destroy it. This passage from Ezekiel, the rain, hailstones, wind, and storms actually refer to the attack and assault of the Babylonians who invaded, overwhelmed, and destroyed Judea. So the hail is an instrument of judgment, it's not real hail. It's symbolic for hostile, pillaging, plundering armies. It signifies armies waging cruel warfare. Famine always falls in the footsteps of invading rotting armies. It's really important to note also that in Ezekiel, hail came as a punishment for heresy, for the false doctrines of the false prophets. The storm following the first trumpet blast is given the same feature to indicate the same reason for the scourge, to punish for heresy and schism and moral turpitude. It's also important to note that fire is a figure of famine. In Ezekiel 5, Israel is divided into thirds and judged accordingly. One third is to be burnt with fire, which later in the chapter is shown to refer to famine. Close quotes, thus the commentaries. So, this bloody hail and fire which is cast on earth is symbolic of war and revolution. It's symbolic of the destruction caused by hostile, pillaging, plundering armies sweeping over and overwhelming the land. And the fire, as well as the notion of being judged by thirds, are symbolic of famine. And just as in the Old Testament such punishments were meted out for heresy and false doctrine, so also the scourge of the punishment for the crimes of heresy, schism, and immorality. So because men, for the most part, have hardened their hearts to the Gospel, they're being chastised by war, pillage, and spiritual famine. Now given all that, the interpretation will fall in this conference is that this terrible hailstorm signifies World War I will very briefly address the spiritual roots of this immense disaster. Speaking in the middle 1800s, Cardinal Payne, the great preacher of the Social reign, reign, kingship of Christ, stated, quote, the main era, the capital crime of this century, speaking of the 1800s, is the pretension of withdrawing public society from the government and the law of God. This crime is essence of what is called the new era, close quote. In other words, by the middle 1800s, the political, moral and cultural environment such that, in general, the leadership of what remained of Christendom no longer felt bound by higher authority, certainly in the elites assigned a spiritual family. And that godlessness set the stage for the Great War, as the Great Alexander Solzhenitsyn made clear in his 1983 Templeton Prize lecture, quote, World War I was a war. When Europe, bursting with health and abundance, fell into a rage of self-mutilation, which could not but sap its strength for a century or more, and perhaps forever. The only possible explanation for this war is a mental eclipse among the leaders of Europe due to their lost awareness of a supreme power above them. Only a godless and bitter man could have moved, moved ostensibly Christian states to employ poison gas, a weapon so obviously beyond the limits of humanity. Quote. The only possible explanation for this war as the leaders of Europe forgot God. Only a godless embitterment could have moved ostensibly Christian states to employ poison gas, a weapon so obviously beyond the limits of humanity. Pope St. Pius attempted premonitions of the coming disaster. In 1912, he told his Secretary of State, Cardinal Mary Del Valle, that, quote, things are going badly. The Great War is approaching, close quote. In 1913, he told the Cardinal, quote, I pity my successor. I shall not see it, but it is only too true that the religio de popolate, which means the time of religion being laid waste, is at hand. In August 19- 1914, all hell broke loose. St. Pius X issued a letter calling on all Catholics in the world to beseech, quote, the merciful God to take away the destructive flames of war the sooner the better and to grant to those who preside over civil affairs to think thoughts of peace and not of affliction." It was his last public statement. He went into seclusion, spending his time in prayer, and died of a broken heart less than three weeks later. Benedict XV was elected in September 1914. In his first statement, he declared that he was, "stricken with inexpressible horror and anguish for the monstrous spectacle of this war with its streams of Christian blood." Close quote. Later in the war, he sent a side note to each of the governments involved in the war. Benedict, shall then the civilized world be not but a field of death? And shall Europe so gloriously, gloriously flourishing, as so though driven by universal madness towards the abyss, and lend her hand to her own suicide? In November 1914, in his first encyclical, Appealing for Peace, Benedict XV listed four causes for the origin of the war, the lack of Christian charity between men, contempt for authority, injustice in the relations of the various social classes, and the fact that men had lost sight of eternity in an unrestrained striving after things of this world. In regards to heresy studying St. Paul, he warned there were large numbers of men with itching ears that it turned away from the truth to fables. He renewed the condemnation of the heirs of modernism and said that Catholics should not only avoid those, but also the spirit of modernism, explaining that, quote, those who are infected by that spirit develop a keen dislike for all that savors of antiquity and become eager searchers after novelties in everything. It is our will that the law of our forefathers should still be held sacred. Let there be no innovation. Keep to what has been handed down in matters of faith that must be inviolably adhered to as the law, close quote. He also stated, certainly those days would seem to have come upon us, which Christ our Lord foretold, you shall hear of wars and rumors of war, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, close Now, to state that certainly, those days spoken of by our Lord would seem to come about uh, upon us is very significant, since in that passage our Lord is explicitly speaking about the end of the world. We continue. Quote The combatants are the greatest and wealthiest natures of the earth. What wonder then, if well provided with the most powerful weapons modern military science has devised, they strive to destroy one another with refinements of horror. There is no limit to the measure of ruin and of slaughter. Day by day the earth is drenched with newly shed blood and is covered with the bodies of the wounded and of the slain. Such has been the change in ideas and morals of men. That unless God comes soon to our help, the end of civilization would seem to be ha- at hand. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. Certainly those days would have seemed to come upon us of which Christ our Lord foretold. You shall hear of world wars and rumors of wars, for nation shall rise upon nation and kingdom against kingdom. Such has been the change in ideas and morals of men. Unless God comes soon to our help, the end of civilization would seem to be at hand. There's no limit to the measure of ruin and of slaughter. Day by day, the Earth is drenched with newly shed blood and is covered with the bodies of wounded and of the slain. There had been 60 million men mobilized. By the time of the Armistice, November 11, 1918, the total number of military and civilian casualties in World War I was around 40 million. There were 20 million deaths and 21 million wounded. 10 million civilians were killed, as were 9.7 million military personnel, another 21 million were wounded. But in spite of the impassioned efforts of both St. Pius X and Benedict XV, who listened to the Pope? Even though after the defeat of Napoleon, the Vatican had had an official presence at the 1814 Congress of Vienna Peace Conference, during the Paris Peace Conferences of 1919 and Versailles, the Holy See was deliberately excluded In 1915, at the insistence of Italy, the Allies had already made a secret treaty to that effect. Who listened to the poem? On May 5, 1917, Benedict XV ordered the invocation Queen of Peace, pray for us, be added to the litany of Our Lady. And he wrote Our earnestly pleading voice, invoking the end of the vast conflict, the suicide. Civilized Europe has remained ever since unheard. To Mary, then, who is the mother of mercy, augmented by grace, let loving and devout appeal go up from every corner of the earth, from noble temples and tiniest chapels, from royal palaces and mansions of the rich, as from a poorest hut, from blood drenched plains and seas. Let it bear to her the anguished cries of mothers and wives, the wailing of innocent little ones, the sighs of every generous heart. Their most tender benign solicitude may be moved, and the peace we ask will be obtained for agitated world. Close quote, Benedict XV. Let me listen to the poem. Our Lady did. Eight days later, she appeared in Fathom. We'll return to that later. The second trumpet. The second angel sounded the trumpet, and as it were a great mountain, burning with fire, was cast into the sea. The third part of the sea became blood. The third part of those creatures died which had life in the sea. The third part of the ships was destroyed. From the commentaries. In this passage, quote, in prophetical imagery, a burning mountain represents an evil kingdom, a menacing and plundering world power. For Jeremiah had employed the same figure to describe Babylon. After its destruction, Babylon is called a burnt mountain. This apocalyptic menace is described as a burning mountain because it would not be an extinct or destroyed world power, but active and full of devastating fire for a long time. The sea represents human society, great multitudes of nations or peoples, as we see elsewhere in the apocalypse. This vision shows that some great nation will bring war and bloodshed upon a large portion of mankind. It also predicts great persecutions against the church. Nations will seek to destroy the church at all costs. The fish of the faithful scattered among the people of the world. The ship is a symbol of the church in the writings of the early fathers, so the ships are churches of the various nations. The plague results in a third of the sea turning to blood, a third of the living things of the sea dying, and a third of ships destroyed. Again, evoking Ezekiel 5, the fire, as well as the notion of being judged by thirds, are symbolic of severe famine. Besides spiritual famine, burning with fire also represents burning or being consumed with air hatred or fanaticism. Close quotes. Thus the commentaries. So great burning mountain represents evil menacing, plundering world power. Burning with fire represents burning with air, being consumed with air, being inflamed with hatred fanaticism. As we've already seen fire when associated with an ocean, being judged by thirds is also symbolic of severe spiritual famine. The sea represents human society, great multitudes of nations or peoples, the fish of the faithful scattered among the peoples of the world. The ships symbolize churches of various nations. So a third of the sea turning to blood, a third of the living things of the sea dying, a third of the ships being destroyed symbolizes that some great nation will blend warm bloodshed upon a large portion of the nations and peoples of the world, as well as great persecutions against the church. Given all that, the interpretation that will follow in this conference is that this great mountain burning with fire, signifies Russia. We spread our errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the Church. We'll very briefly address the spiritual roots of this immense disaster, with a brief consideration of the character of Karl Marx, followed by a glance at the spiritual state of Russia just prior to the Revolution. Karl Marx. Marx, who died in 1883, co-authored, along with Frederick Engels, The Communist Manifesto, it was published in 1848, and asserted that all human history had been based on class struggles, These would ultimately disappear with what he called the triumph of the proletariat. In other words, Marx claimed that through struggles, history is actually headed somewhere. There's this continual progress until ultimately it reaches a perfect state. We're talking about matter here, because he's a materialist. Once we see that human history is just a record of matter gradually perfecting itself through time until it reaches a perfect state, once we see that, it's easy to understand why, according to Marx's quote, Darwin's book is very important, and serves me as the basis in natural science for the class struggle in history, Close quote. quote, This is the book which contains the basis in natural history for our view, Close quote. In fact, Marx was so enamored of Darwin's work that he wanted to dedicate parts of Das Kapital to Darwin. Now, Darwin wrote back to Marx to refuse the honor because, among the other things, he did not believe that direct attacks on religion advanced the cause of free thought. Although there's a lot more that could be said about his materialistic philosophy, we don't have time. Let's briefly consider some of his more important poetry. Before I read this though, it's actually very important for everyone here to make an act of the will to close himself to every spirit that's not of the Holy Spirit. Just make an interior act of the will that uh, that you are close to every spirit that's not of the Holy Spirit. That's something you should actually do on a regular basis. But you, just, you just have to will that, okay? Back to Marx.
1: I will read excerpts
0: from his poetry, and as I read this, ask yourself, does this sound like the writings of a materialist? Does this sound like the writings of someone who thinks that all there is is matter and nothing more? Those are the questions I want you to think about as I read excerpts from Marx's poetry. I'll I'll read a full poem first and then I'll read excerpts. Karl Marx, the player. The hellish vapors rise and fill the brain, Till I go mad, my heart is utterly changed. See the sword? The prince of darkness sold it to me. For me, he beats the time and gives the signs. Ever more boldly, I play the dance of death. Karl Marx, excerpts from the Pale Maiden. Thus heaven I forfeited, I know it full well. My soul, once true to God, is chosen for hell. Karl Marx, excerpts from an epigram on Hegel. I am great like a god. I clothe myself in darkness like him. Karl Marx, excerpt from invocation of one in despair. I wish to avenge myself against the one who rules above. Karl Marx, excerpt from another poem. If there is a something which devours, I'll leap within it, though I bring the world to ruins. The world which balks between me and the abyss, I will smash to pieces with my enduring curses. Marx loved the words of Mephistopheles and Faust. Everything in existence is worth being destroyed. In fact, "destroy" became his nickname. So, does that sound like the writings of a materialist? Does that sound like the writings of someone who thinks that all there is is matter, nothing more? Or does that sound like the writings of a Satanist? It makes it easier to understand the imagery of the great mom burning with fire. Let's turn to a very brief description of the spiritual state of Russia leading up to the revolution. The great Alexander Solzhenitsyn explains that, quote, the subtle poisons of secularism permeated the educated classes of Russia in the course of the 19th century and opened the path to Marxism. By the time of the revolution, faith had virtually disappeared in Russian educated circles, and amongst the uneducated, its health was threatened. Close quote. By the time of the revolution, faith had virtually disappeared in Russian educated circles, and amongst the uneducated, its health was threatened. We're meant to be nourished by God's holy word and solid doctrine. But in a spiritual family, the people aren't given the words of faith and solid doctrine. doctrine. Rather, as St. Paul puts it, they're given doctrines of devilism. Now as we've seen, the trumpets announce various disasters and judgments falling on the earth. If mankind doesn't heed the word, warning, and repent, then another trumpet will blow and a greater disaster will fall them. In other words, this momentum builds up, trumpet after trumpet after trumpet, and one plague flows into another, and in a certain sense, propels the next disaster. The trumpet plague of the First World War, unfortunately, was not the occasion for a massive repentance. And so it kept its momentum, so to speak, and kept inflicting damage throughout the years. As our lady said in July 1917, the war is going to end. So if people are not cease offending God, a worse one will break out the pontificate of Pius XI. And now we're going to see just how that one unheated trumpet play, besides having momentum of its own, helps propel the next. Quote, In 1917, a plan was developed by the German High Command to use revolution as a weapon, like poison gas in the stocking submarine, by sending Lenin and some of his Bolsheviks from their haven in Switzerland into Russia by sealed railroad cars. In the expectation they would knock Russia out of the war. And amazingly enough, using a U.S. passport and with the declared intention to carry forward the revolution, Trotsky traveled from New York to Russia. That fall in the October Revolution, also known as the Bolshevik Revolution, Lenin's revolutionaries seized power and imposed a Marxist government on Russia. In the years of the following the revolution, other republics were consolidated along with the Soviet, Soviet Russia and the Union, of Soviet socialist republics. Now immediately after his successful revolution, Lenin summarized his program. Vladimir Lenin quote, we are the real revolutionaries. Yes, we're gonna tear the whole thing down. We shall destroy and smash everything, ha ha ha. Everything will be smashed to smithereens and fly from all directions and nothing will remain standing. Yes, we're gonna destroy everything and on the ruins we will build our temple. It will be a temple for the happiness of all but we shall destroy the entire bourgeoisie and grind them to power, ha ha ha, to power, powder, remember that. And remember that the ultimate truth lies in communism, which must now be brought into existence." Close quote, Vladimir Lenin. A glance at poor Soviet policies gives some idea of just how Lenin set out to destroy everything and smash into smithereens. First, in February 1918, all the churches in Russia were forbidden from owning property. All religious instruction in any school where non religious subjects were taught was completely forbidden, even for a church school. There's a spiritual family. Second, in April 1919, in historical first, the Soviet government ordered the establishment of a network of concentration camps. By 1923, there were 315 of these camps. Quote The methods employed by Lenin and perfected by Stalin and Hinchman bring to mind the methods used by Nazis. But this is because the Nazis adopted the techniques developed by the communists." Close quote. Third, quote, one of the greatest evils was the perversion of language. As if by magic, the concentration camp system was turned into a re-education system, the tyrants became educators who transformed the people of old society into new people. In China, the concentration camp prisoner is called a student who is required to study the correct thoughts of the party and reform his own faulty thinking.
1: A lie will generally
0: contain an element of the truth. Perverted words are situated in a twisted vision that distorts the landscape. Thanks to their incomparable propaganda strength grounded in the subversion language, the communists successfully deflected the criticisms leveled against their terrorist tactics. Close quote. And fourth, the scientific use of mass murder. According to Black Book of Communism, that was a scholarly work published by Harvard Press, quote, Terror has always been one of the basic ingredients of modern communism. Crimes against civilians, the mass murder of human beings, of men, women and children, are the essence of terror. The following rough approximation gives some sense of the scale and gravity of these crimes. The USSR, 20 million deaths. China, 65 million deaths. Vietnam, 1 million deaths. North Korea, 2 million deaths. Cambodia, 2 million deaths. Eastern Europe, 1 million deaths. Latin America, 150,000 deaths. Africa, 1. 1.7 million deaths. Afghanistan, 1.5 million deaths. Their International Communist Movement, Communist parties Not in Power, about 10,000 deaths. The total approach is 100 million people killed. Close quote. 100 million people deliberately murdered. Their own governments. 100 million. Give some idea of why the Holy See got alarmed. Already by 1923, Pius XI, in a secret consistory with his cardinals, told them he was considering having a council in 1925, a general council of the church. One of the topics to discuss was the evils of communism. His a cyclical anti is on communism. Pius XI stated that, quote, for the first time in history, we're witnessing a struggle cold-blooded and purpose mapped out to the least detail between man and all that is called God, close quote. Now that, in itself, is a very sobering statement, coming as it does from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in that chapter, the topic that St. Paul is treating is the coming of the Antichrist. The Pope pointed out there would be no communism if the rulers of the nations hadn't scorned the teachings and warnings of the Church by trying to build society on secular foundations, which, quote, today are crumbling one after another before our eyes, as everything must crumble that is not grounded on the one cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus. Close, quote. The whole complaint, that there were too many Catholics in name only. There were too many Catholics who only do the bare minimum, would have no desire of advancing spiritually, and he warned, that, quote, the Catholic who does not live really and sincerely according to the faith he professes will not long be of himself in these days when the winds of strife and persecution blow so fiercely will he swept away defenseless in this new deluge which threatens the world. Close code. Those are words we could all take to our. He said this evil could only be conquered by a worldwide crusade of penance and through the intercession of Our Lady. Where was that penance? Worldwide crusade of penance. Stop communism. There's a reason these plagues keep happening. The Pope taught that communism was intrinsically wrong, referred to as a satanic scourge. Summarizing their doctrines follows, quote, there is in the world only one reality, matter, the blind forces of which involve, evolve into plant, animal, man. Even human society is nothing but a form of matter, evolving in the same way. By a perpetual conflict of forces, Matter moves towards the final synthesis of a classless society. In such a doctrine, there is no room for God. There is no difference between matter and spirit, between soul and body. There is no hope in a future life." Close quote. The Pope pointed out that since communists believe that struggles accelerate the evolutionary progress toward the perfect classless society, they deliberately provoke hatred, conflict, and destruction. He pointed out they only permit absolute equality between men which means no God over man, no pope, bishop, priest, or the faithful, no husband over the wife, no parents over children. He pointed out the communists despise housewives and stay-at-home moms as anti-revolutionary bourgeois activities. They consider marriage and the family to be purely artificial civil institutions. And they insisted that the state should take cultural responsibility for the education and training of the children. From all that, it's easy to see where the late, great Father Hard used to say, America is the most successful Marxist nation on earth. We'll pick up with the third trumpet in part two. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.